Uh, we are in a series um, called Spirituality of Everyday Life, and the idea here is that we can talk a lot about um, doctrine, a lot about um, various things related to the faith, related to scripture, but sometimes there's just some practical, proverbial wisdom type things. How do we bridge into um, this with our faith? Uh, this very practical thing in um, our everyday life from when we wake up to when we go to bed uh, that might not be as abstract. And so we're talking about things like work and time and stewardship. And Pete kind of mentioned, he thought, you know, Ken, what would you think about teaching on uh, marriage, family, and parenting? Just kind of that relationship or kind of those relational dynamics in the home. Uh, and I think he was punting to me, um, one, so that he didn't have to do it. Uh, and two, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, uh, I was sure I was going to get marriage perfect, and I, I didn't um, and haven't. And I was quite sure, uh, even up to the age that Mary Joy was when she was two years old, I was quite sure that I was and was going to get parenting perfect. Um, and, and I haven't, um, uh, but I do know that I will get grandparenting perfect. Um, so the fact that life's a bit messy with marriage and family for myself, it's an interesting thing that lately, I think just because um, I'm now bald and old um, and that my kids are, are growing up and reaching the age, at least biblically, where even though they might still be in my home, um, in terms of scripture, they'd be considered adults. Um, the, the state even lets them on the road, um, at least one of them. Uh, and so, interestingly, uh, I've been getting, as I, as I travel different places, I've actually been getting asked a lot to speak on, on marriage and, and parenting and things like that. Um, churches where the pastor might not have children or, or has very young children, or just with different groups. Um, Tam and I were on a trip. It was kind of a retreat to someone, somewhere very hot. I won't tell you where because you'll misunderstand that this is not a place that I wanted to go. Um, the name would make you think I did, but I don't like hot uh, or sand or sun, really. Um, <laughs> I don't like hot. Uh, but Tam and I went on this retreat with this group of people, and it was for... Uh, a lot of people that were high net worth and someone that had written a book for how do you steward uh, wealth, basically, and they wanted us to go for me to speak on kind of justice issues. What does that look like? Uh, and they wanted us there as couples because it was a lot of couples coming. And the interesting thing out of this, uh, it was about four or five days, this four or five day retreat, was that there was a steady stream, a, a line, basically, of people waiting to talk to Tamara um, between activities, uh, sitting next to her at meals. They even had her get up really early one morning and do a whole round table all around how she's raising our girls or, or what her ideas or thoughts or what she's learned, even the mistakes she's, she's made or learned from with regard to parenting. And so it's, it was really cool to see. I, um, I'm, I'm wired as a teacher. Uh, I walk into a room, I start teaching, even if no one wants it. Right? Like, um, Tamara's the opposite. Tamara um, only teaches when someone invites it or asks it. And so it's been really fun for me to watch as my wife has, has been growing into this role, being able to share and, and, uh, and love on other women um, or 
or men as regards to how they look at their children. So this has kind of been a, a new thing that's been growing up. So um, when Pete kind of said, hey, what, what if you kind of folded this into this series, uh, I kind of just thought, why not? Um, and so I want to make a biblical distinction here first. Um, the art of preaching or the, the science of preaching or the theology of preaching is that the, the pastor has a delegated authority. The preacher has a delegated authority. That the authority comes from Scripture, first and foremost, uh, and from the calling that God gives in terms of what this office, this kind of this task of preaching or teaching the church, how God has set that aside, and how there are elders, and there have been for, for thousands of years, that would lay hands on someone and, and charge them with the task. So in some sense, the, the authority that a preacher has comes from the authority that the text has, and this office that's not about me or someone standing here, but this office that's, that's held a certain way. That's where the authority comes from. When a, a preacher starts getting into opinions, um, that's, that's, those aren't the precepts of Scripture. That's the application that that particular person has found for the precepts. Um, does that make sense? Even Paul, you see, doing this, when he talks uh, to the Corinthian people, Jesus said this, but I also say, um, or Jesus said this, and then I kind of am adding. And what he's really doing is saying, um, this, this is the recognized teaching of Jesus, and, and here I'm going to kind of mark it out for you. Now I'm going to go a, a bit further on my own, but I want you to know that it's I, Paul, not Jesus, that's kind of carrying it to this level of application. So we even see kind of Paul falling into that kind of understanding. So I want to walk through basically three big things. The first one's going to be on conversation um, or dialogue or speech. Life is about relationships, but relationships run or trade on the currency of communication. Verbal, nonverbal, doesn't matter what it is. All relationships borrow on, run on the rails of, kind of trade on what happens in human interaction or communication from nonverbal to verbal and, and everything in between. And so I want to talk a little bit about just um, some, some thoughts about relationships that way, and that has relevance to um, marriage as well as kids. I want to give a couple brief words to marriage, and then I want to kind of finish with some thoughts on parenting, um, and I'll just kind of go in that order. And what we're going to do is kind of put some scriptures out there. Some of them are pretty broad. They're, they're Proverbs or wisdom literature, and, and then I'll kind of just share what I've come to learn from them. But the authority is in the text. Um, the messiness or the mistakes or the parts you disagree with uh, are, are all mine and, and some of Tamer's. Um, uh, actually, um, last night we went and sat for two and a half hours at Ola and had um, fresh-made guacamole um, and saw everyone in town going to prom. Um, because we were at the downtown Ola. But it was the first time I ever said, hey, Tamara, would you come sit with me and, and think through sermon prep with me together? Because I, the, and it was, it was twofold. I only told her one. The first one was I thought she'd have a lot of wisdom to add. And, and, uh, and then the second one was I didn't want to, like, say something today and have her thinking in her mind, well, that's not true. Or you don't do that. You know what I mean? Like, I was kind of, anyways. Um, 
the first one was really what I was after. So, um, like I said, uh, any of the things you disagree with, it's from Tamara, who, uh, who spoke into the sermon. Uh, all right, on, uh, speaking of words, um, on, on words, here is the, the, the big kind of overarching um, umbrella that I want to give to this whole thing on, on speech and dialogue, and it's, it's this. You, we need to learn to, in, in human life and maturity, we need to learn to argue to heal, not argue to hurt. Um, I've spent 20 years trying to come up with that language, but we need to argue to heal, not argue to hurt. When we argue to hurt uh, that friendship, that coworker, that spouse, that child, what we're doing is something about as foolish as being on a blow-up raft in the middle of the ocean, and we're popping little holes as we're as we're cutting this person with our words. We're we're, we're putting little holes in that that raft. Does that make sense? When we argue to hurt, we are actually destroying uh, our relationships and our ability to float together, uh, whatever that relationship might be, coworker, spouse, child, um, someone in this city. And so argument, when, when we're arguing with someone, ought not to be about hurting them or wounding them with our words or winning, that it's motivated by competition, but it ought to be about healing, about bringing together, about unity, about love, ultimately about reconciliation. Okay, so it's not the, the competitive edge of the words, but the wisdom of the words that matters. So that's kind of the broad umbrella. And then the first thing is just this, that words are really, really important. Um, once you say them, you can't unsay them. I watched the movie last night after getting back from Ola. I watched Inception with my two oldest girls because it's, it's very, very theological. Um, and I thought I could teach them a lot through it. Uh, my daughter's in logic, and I was like, see, this is the value of philosophy or logic. is like you can put a thought into someone's mind three dreams deep, and, and, and it'll grow in their, in their mind like a virus, a good virus. And you can literally transform or change someone's mind by good use of logic, philosophy. That's honestly um, what I was teaching my daughters last night. So we're watching Inception, but there's this, this crazy part where... Um, Leonardo DiCaprio is talking about the power of an idea and, and that once your mind grabs hold of it, it, it'll never let go of it. It can never forget it. Um, there's two, two proverbs here that are identical in terms of wording. And we'll put them on the screen. But Proverbs 18.8 8 and Proverbs 26.22 say the same thing. It sounds really strange to me. From, a, um, from our understanding of Scripture, that this is the book that God left us and that it has all different genres of literature and it teaches us and it instructs us, it seems really strange that we get to a book and that we get eight chapters separated and, and we see the exact same words just show up again in a totally different context, uh, almost word for word. Um, it just, it's redundant. Right? So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that you can, you can underline the importance of this verse. That God saw fit for it to show up twice verbatim in Scripture. And it's this, 
The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. So inflammatory words, uh, sensational words, words that hurt, words that are, that are spun, words that are twisted, gossip, um, they're like choice morsels that you would eat and they would go all the way down and you would taste it all the way down and go, oh my gosh, that's good. Um, think of carne asada, right? Or, or like something like really, really good. Um, and it goes down to the inmost parts. Uh, here's the interesting thing. Words, the content they carry go all the way to, to the core of us. Words are important. We need to be careful with our words. Secondly, um, that fake news is not a new concept. It's been around since, since the very beginning. That, that news, that words that would jump into our mind and that we would run with and that we would act on and that we would dictate relationships upon, that, that fake news, this, this kind of buzzword out there, has been around for a very long time. It's called gossip. It's called gossip. It's when we take bits of data and use it in a propaganda form. By the way, propaganda, fascinating history. Don't have time today, but I'm, I'm working really hard to find a sermon that'll fit in um, because it's got World War I, it's got World War II, and it's, and, it's, and it's really the precursor to the advertising culture that we have today, which is basically saying, um, ah, never mind. Um, um, Let's look real quickly at James. James is interesting. James, this is the brother of Jesus. And in this famous passage on the taming of the tongue, he, uh, he seems like a really extreme guy. I've always thought that about James. Um, uh, Martin Luther didn't like James because James kind of took the other side of faith, that faith naturally has works to it. And Luther wanted to say that, that faith and works were totally separate. So Luther actually put James at the back of his German translation and used to go around saying, because James in chapter 3 here says, not many of you should, should uh, endeavor to become teachers, right? And Luther used to say that James should have taken his own advice. Um, it's, it's, it's funny how, uh, how strong Luther was and how he talked about Jesus' brother. Um, but here's, uh, here's what Luther says. I'm sorry, what James says. Uh, James 3, verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses, we make them obey us and we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. They are large and are driven by strong winds. They are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is that is set on fire by a small spark. Lightning out there in, in the, the cascades or a campfire that gets out of control in August. A small fire can literally take down a great forest. The tongue also is a fire. Your tongue, my tongue, is a fire. It's, it's not surprising that when, when Isaiah is purified to go do the work of the Lord, but remember this dream Isaiah has, that the angel of the Lord takes a hot coal and basically burns his tongue. It's this idea of purifying what is a great fire and uncontrollable and harnessing it for the Lord's work, the prophesying, the teaching of the Lord. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. 
your tongue, my tongue, is a world of evil among the parts of the body. Um, it corrupts the whole body, and it sets the whole of a course of one's life on fire. And this is, is not from above, but from below. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue. The, the tongue, our speech, our words, is arguably, if not the most, one of the greatest issues in your marriage and in your parenting and in the life of this church. Does that make sense? Biblical argument here. The tongue, what comes from the tongue, is arguably one of the greatest issues that we have to deal with. So we're playing with fire when we talk about the tongue. Now when we get into arguments with our kids or in marriage, we know how quickly it becomes combustible. You add a little bit of emotion, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of, of, of wrongdoing or passion about how illogical someone is being, and a little bit of hurt feelings, and the fire gets stoked. And so Proverbs 15.1 says this. Um, Proverbs 15.1. That's not Proverbs 15.1. Um, Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Um, I feel like that's John. That might be John. Um, but trust me, I think Proverbs 15.1, my fault on that. Um, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So one way of answering a heated dialogue where the tongue is involved turns away the fire. It curbs the fire. It starts a backfire that is meant to cut off create a vacuum, and end the progression of this forest fire. Does that make sense? Before it really gets too far. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The worst of your fights in marriage or with your parents, both of you arguably were returning fire with fire. You're exchanging fire. A harsh word stirs up anger. Um... So how does this really look? Is, is, uh, we have to come back to, to identifying what the harsh words are. Um, they're not you, you fill in the blank, four-letter word, or you. It's not that that's the harsh word. Here's harsh words. You always, every time, as long as I can remember, you do this, you know, you, you know, you do the same thing. Like, these are harsh words because it's not being willing to hear the other person. It's, it's saying, whatever you say, I'm going to just throw it right back at you. You lob a, a grenade, I'm going to lob it right back at you. Um, if you try and say that I'm wronging you, I'm going to turn it right around and say you're wronging me, but even more. Harsh words don't always have to be um, words that we don't teach our kids. Harsh words are words that add gas to a fire. And when you universalize everything, always, forever, as long as I can remember, um, that adds fire. A gentle answer goes something different. Help me understand 
what you mean. I'm confused. Um, what are you really saying? Is, is, is it that that's making you mad, or did something else happen that I don't know about? Um, I, I'm having a hard time hearing you right now. Maybe let's, 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 let's go get some things done, and in a half hour, let's go for a drive, and we can come back and talk about this. Um, boy, I can tell you're really upset. That was not my intention. Even though I don't know what I fully did wrong yet, or I didn't understand it to be that way, I certainly didn't mean to do this to you. And so I'm, I'm sorry, because if I've caused this much pain, that was, that was not my intention. Rarely is it our intention to hurt someone, right? The easiest forgiveness to ask for in the world, um, this is not biblical authority, this is, a, this is Ken White's authority, because I've, I've, I've asked forgiveness a lot in my life. When, when you're given my personality, um, it's something that you become really talented at. Um, the easiest forgiveness to ask in the world is the 1% forgiveness. The easiest forgiveness to say in the world is, is the 1% one. Meaning, I have no flippin' idea what I did wrong. But I bet there's 1% I can own up to. <laughs> which is just simply like, I'm sorry. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I didn't mean to do this. It, it came out wrong. That wasn't my intention with those words. Um, boy, I think you misunderstood me, but I could have been clearer. I could have been clearer is admitting to 1%, right? But it, you, can, you can always say it. It's there every single time for the taking. And when you are willing to answer that way, wow, I'm sorry, uh, you know, however, whichever angle, I didn't mean it that way. All of a sudden, it takes the fire out. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Does that make sense? Um, let's continue on. First Peter 3.15. It's kind of the same thing, but fascinating part to this verse is I was always taught this verse in philosophy, or if you understand or know or have heard of what the discipline of apologetics is, apologetics is the Christian kind of sub-discipline of how to give an answer to skeptics about the, the Christian faith. Does that make sense? So it's a, it's a field of study like his, church history or theology or, or church ministry or whatever, but this one is how do, you, how do you engage skeptics? And this verse is kind of like the, the jumping off point for where apologetics gets its name and everything else. But let me read it to you. It, it's talking about suffering for, for doing good. First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Um, Be like-minded. Don't repay evil with evil, insult with insult. In other words, don't fight fire with fire. Don't, don't throw the grenades back. Um, on the contrary, repay evil with a blessing. Because to, uh, to this you were called that you may inherit a blessing. God is going to spiritually bless you as you're willing to endure wrong words or what you might perceive as hurtful words and return it with a blessing. And it goes on and gives the promise, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil um, and now it transitions back, not quoting anymore. And it says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. So that's echoes of Jesus' teaching. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
right? So this is what Peter is now arguing, and he says, do not fear the threats of those people who are gonna, gonna hurt you for doing right. Do not be frightened. Here's the apologetics verse, but in your hearts, we got this on the screen, First uh, Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer, an apology, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but you do this with gentleness and respect. Then it goes on and it says, keeping a is the same sentence, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if you do God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Okay, so we are doing this in, in, in a, a way of patterning or channeling the same kind of behavior that Jesus did. Now, who was Peter writing to when he writes the book of 1 Peter? Um, quick church history shot. Remember Paul's first missionary journey? He leaves from the, the city of Antioch, modern-day Turkey, and he kind of bends around to, again, modern-day Turkey, to an area called Galatia and goes to a lot of small towns there, and he starts several churches, okay? Um, the Galatian churches. Galatians was written to all of those churches uh, by Paul, and First Peter, likewise, written to the churches that Paul founded. Um, arguably, possibly, Paul is already dead. Arguably, possibly, Paul is, is locked up um, by Nero, uh, he's out of the picture in Rome or even further west, but there's persecution coming in the church, and Peter is kind of this elder statesman and authority, has now basically taken on the shepherding role. He's going to encourage these Galatian Christians to stand strong in their faith. And so Peter is now writing to Paul's churches in Galatia, and who were they enduring uh, persecution from? Maybe the religious or the, 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 the secular authorities, the political authorities, but definitely the religious authorities. They were, they were Christians, and the different religious communities were trying to squash them out. Um, the example of Jesus. Who was Jesus persecuted by? Eventually, Pontius Pilate, but arguably before that, the, the, the Romans didn't get involved with Jesus at all. It was the religious authorities that persecuted Jesus. C.S. Lewis, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. When, when Peter is talking about those who are, are, are slandering you for, for doing good because of this hope you have in Jesus, that you're living according to a faith, he's not envisioning the evil atheist. In fact, the Romans were theists, and so were the Jews. There wasn't really this category of atheist in Peter's day, but he was envisioning people that were attacking you for living a certain kind of life because Jesus had called you into that, living by faith. And, and this persecution, even from religious people, you are supposed to answer them with gentleness and respect and explain to them why you're living differently. Think of the Amish. I, I'm beginning to think there's something deeply spiritual about a people that for a, a couple hundred years has been gently answering people like myself 
as to why they live the way they live. Other believers, other Christians, other religious people. Um, Tamara and I are having to do this more and more. Answer Christians, Christians in Bend, Oregon, Christians other places. Answer them why we, we are living the way we're living. Uh, we, we homeschool our kids. We have to tell homeschool families the, the, the pinnacle of religious whatever, which I evidently am I'm a part of, we have to tell them why we're, we're having conversations about race in our house or why I would write a book on, on race and racism. Like, give an answer to people, even religious people, that don't understand or don't agree with you and do it with gentleness and respect. This is what we're called to. This is what God says, uh, I will bless you if you are able to bless others like that. Because ultimately when you argue, argue to heal, don't argue to hurt. And if you do that, you are somehow submitting your tongue to the purposes of God, the reconciliation of all things. Otherwise, we degenerate down into burning things down. All right. Um, the best friendships are built around common interests and ease of conversation. Common interests and ease of conversation come from consistency, proximity, and transparency. We've got to live life with people if we're going to talk well with people. That's why cro uh, cross-cultural conversation is so difficult. World War I, scholars for forever have been perplexed how the whole world could stumble into that thing over the course of a whole summer when you have people of different cultures corresponding through letters that take a week or two weeks to, to get to somebody and then an answer to get back and that this whole thing begins to just degenerate because it's hard to talk about, uh, to talk well with people when you don't share cultural values and when you're not in proximity. So it's just closeness breeds good communication. Say we're sorry quick, decide to change how we're coming at it. Ephesians 6, 4, and this is what um, Ben read earlier. Um, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. By the way, he's quoting the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments was given to adults. So when, when it says children, he's not talking about little kids. He's talking about the children of, of the elderly. Okay, so we're talking about children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Um, honor your father and your mother. They served you. Now when, when they're going blind, when they're not able to contribute, you serve them as well. Um, honor your father and your mother. It's difficult. You don't agree with them on everything, whatever it might be, but you honor them. This is the first commandment that goes with a promise. Why? Because there's no logic sometimes, in honoring your father and your mother. If we're doing the biblical thing, we do things that are wise and we do things that are logical. What happens when we run into a situation where honoring a father or a mother does not look right, does not look wise, does not seem biblical, um, and God says do it anyways because it will go well with you. That's my promise. So you honor your father and your mother not because it's logical, but because it's a precept of faith. You're trusting God, not the wisdom of your parents when you honor them. Does that make sense? You're trusting God, not the wisdom of your parents, when you choose to submit to a command from God to honor your father and your mother. This is what Paul is repeating, direct quotes out of, out of uh, the Ten Commandments. This is the first commandment with a promise that it would 
go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Next verse, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training, padia, and instruction of the Lord. Um, Padilla uh, is where we get the word pedagogy. If you're a teacher, you're going to be very familiar with that. Pedagogy just means teaching or, or our philosophy of education. This word here that is sometimes translated in other uh, translations of the Bible as discipline um, brings up an interesting thing that we've gotten wrong for a very long time in the Puritan kind of world. Um, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training, the teaching, the nurture, and instruction of the Lord, not the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline is a word we get from disciple. Um, and the interesting thing is it's, it's after the Reformation and, and the era of the Puritans that the word discipline begins to not take on a nurture and a shaping by a teacher with a learner. That's what disciple means, is learner. It begins to take on a more um, military connotation of kind of, of forcing somebody and in, in training them through kind of rigor or harshness um, or punishment into being shaped a certain kind of way. So the military and the wars fought after the Reformation begins to take this word that way. But the Puritans and their idea of punishment, that you, you punish the sin out of somebody. Like, don't spare the rod or, or you'll lose the child. This, this notion comes up strong in the Puritan kind of world. And the word dis- discipline, which meant more of a nurture and a bending or a training, takes on this kind of againstness idea. And I think our whole parenting has gotten off track because of it. I've begun to realize the greatest thing I can do to train my kids is to show them something beautiful and call them to it. To show them the glory of the Lord and let their hearts be drawn to it. To see the image of God in them, the creative potential in them, and and shine a spotlight on it and magnify it. You can do this. I'll help you, I'll show you, but you can do this. Wow, did you see that you were able to do this? That's amazing. I bet kids your age can't do that. You just went to Google, you typed in like crazy cake, whatever, you went and made it, or you picked up this instrument, Esther, and within 10 minutes you had Piano Man on on the harmonica. That's amazing. You're amazing. And you know what happens? Practice becomes a little easier for Esther when she's doing music. She, I don't know if she's even in here. Hopefully she's not because she might argue with me. But there's another way to, to get a child to practice is to look over their shoulder and to discipline them into it, right? There's one way to clean the room. Hey, if you get that room clean, we can, we can go out and walk the dog, just you and dad, because kids, my daughters love being with their dad. And hey, hurry up and get it done, then we can go do that. And the room gets clean. Or I can come in and yell and say, I thought I told you to clean this yesterday. You better get it clean, you better get it clean now. That's kind of the sense of discipline that we've come in. And do you notice that that's tied to the exasperation that Paul was saying, don't do? Don't use your words to, to press in on somebody so that they just go, man, there's nowhere under the sun I can go where it's not uh, being heavy, made to feel heavy. The Pharisees, this was the way they parented or shepherded their flock. 
Everything was rules, and it was so heavy. And Jesus came along as a shepherd and looked at the other shepherds, and he said, this is crazy. This is craziness. You ask him to do all this stuff, but you don't lift a finger to help them in their human potentiality. You're not nurturing them. And Jesus says, come to me. My burden is light. My, my, my yoke is light. My burden is heavy. If you come to me, I nurture you and help you grow. This is the purpose of words. This is the opportunity with words. This is the pedagogy that we can grab hold of. Um, let me move on. Um, yeah. Speak the truth in love. I think we emphasize the truth part. Um, I think we get it wrong. We think it's always good to speak the truth. I think it's actually immature to always speak the truth. Um, when my kids are being the most immature and we get absolutely, uh, we're in a social situation and, and, and they say something like, your hair looks ugly, you look fat, you know, this, that, whatever, and we can't believe what we just heard, and we say something to them, the most immature response is, well, it's true, right? Maturity isn't always speaking truth. Maturity is knowing when not to speak truth. Um, you can always speak truth, you can do it tomorrow, you can do it next year, you can do it 10 years from now. If, if you don't share truth, you're always in control of when and how you're going to share it. Once you speak truth in that moment, you're not in control anymore. The worst things I've done, I took my oldest daughter and, and someone had made a flippant comment about her. And, and I told her about this flippant comment. The crazy thing is I didn't agree with the comment. But in telling her that that comment had been made, she now lives with it. And I realize this comment was so small and so insignificant and it really doesn't even belong in your life. It's so small and so insignificant. But by telling it, speaking it into to existence, I just made that thing bigger in her life. It's not mature to speak truth always. It's more mature to know uh, how to withhold truth and, and when to speak truth where it's most profitable. So this whole speak the truth in love, I think, I think we, it comes with this speak the truth, yeah! Make sure you do it in, in a little bit of love. You know, Sprink, just sprinkle a little love at the end. You know, like, hey, you know, I, I'm only telling you that because I love you. Or I, that's, that's not the point. I think, I think the point is only speak the truth. When, when your motive is love. Only speak the truth when it's going to heal. Only speak the truth when it's going to nurture, not discipline or feel heavy or exasperate. Um, marriage. Uh, I'm running low on time. So uh, this same chapter in Ephesians, if we backed it up to, to the second half of, of chapter 5, it's one of those those hot button passages on the whole role of husbands and wives. And it talks about wives. Um, first, it says, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. So we've just set the tone, 521 in Ephesians, that husbands and wives submit one to another. So that's the pretext, the umbrella, okay? Um, then it says, wives, submit to your husbands as you do the Lord. So this whole idea of wives, submit to your husbands, ah, uh, like, you know, this kind of like 
rubbing your nose in it or whatever weird kind of thing ends up happening. That's, that's just restating what had already been stated right above when it said submit to each other. You're supposed to be a team. What does that team look like? Well, first, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Because um, he's not going to be like the Lord, so you're choosing to do it as if he was a better version of himself. Um, and it goes on, it gives a tiny little paragraph. As the church submits to Christ, you know, so that whatnot. Then it starts in 25 and gives um, four times the text to men, um, which should, should say something. And what we're really saying here is that now husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then it goes on and uh, on. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for it just as Christ does the church. And then it goes down and says, now this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Each one of you must love his, uh, your wife as, as yourself, and the wife must respect the husband. And, and this is underneath the idea of mutual submission, your team, your team. It doesn't matter if, if you're on a team, soccer team, if some kid runs slow, you, you, you overlook that. You know, he, he passes well, he tries hard, you encourage him, you know. Um, you don't rail on him for being so. When you're on a team, you, you get by together, right? This is what's really going on here. And I think for marriage, we need to quickly say a couple things because I don't see marriages always today acting as a team, um, First question is, how do you spend your leisure time? Um, girls' nights, guys' nights, potentially one of the most destructive things ever. Um, if that's being done over and above the nurturing and the investment into your relationship with your spouse, I'm not saying it's inherently evil, but it can lead you astray if that is becoming more significant than investing into the relationship with your own body, your spouse, the one that you're supposed to be submitting to. Um, uh, if you're finding escape from your family or for, uh, from your spouse, rather than finding yourself in your family, that's a danger. Um, are you leaning in or are you leaning out in your relationship? Uh, I've been hearing the phrase seven-year itch again a lot. I, I remember hearing it growing up, didn't hear it for like a decade, I'm hearing it again. This idea that statistically a lot of divorces happen around year seven. Why? Um, first off, a lot of divorces aren't chosen, so the stigma needs to be gone. Some people choose them. Um, a lot of people don't choose them. It happens, okay? But why at seven years? Because the enamor, the the idea, the fantasy, the newness, all of the excitement rather than the mundane part of life by then has burned off, right? What, what Paul is saying is when you love your wife like you love your own body, he's saying you love it, not in its, its kind of um, mythical state. Um, you love it the way it actually is. That's what nakedness means, is that it's completely here. The good, the bad, but what is, is, and there's still love. The greatest love is when I'm completely known and still loved. I, I realized some five, six years ago, 
I was just so driven with church planting, I think I didn't realize it for a long time. But that whole idea, it's lonely at the top, uh, or it's hard, hard for leaders to have friends or whatever. What I began to realize is in a public ministry, you have, you, you have a persona, and that's what people know. And, and oftentimes when you spend time with them or when my family shows up to their house and the longer we hang out together, the more they begin to go, oh, dude's not that great at all. <laughs> like, in fact, it's kind of annoying at times or whatever, whatever, whatever. And I've experienced some of the greatest rejection because of that. I've also experienced some of the deepest friendships with people that I've worked with for now 11 years or, or longer, and they know everything about me. There's no shine, no pretense, um, no image to uphold. It's, it's completely transparent as it is, and yet they love me. That's love, right? And the idea is in our marriage, the sooner we get to um, understanding the harder parts and going, I accept that. I've got grace for that. Just like Jesus has grace for the messy parts of the church so that it can be reconciled into him. I see you and I'm glad to reconcile you in. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not looking at you as an object to fulfill some kind of pleasure as I go into life with whatever my fantasies are and that someday it's going to kind of burn out and then it's just going to be what it is and then I'm going to go look for some other fantasy. That's not it at all. And mutual submission is how we do this. Um, I've gotten into this thing lately. Uh, Tamara laughs at me, but I'll come home from work and she's got to like run the kids around and I'll kind of look at her and I'm like, hey, can, can I run errands with you? You know, and she, she laughs and, yeah, sure. You know, so I jump in the car and I just drive with her to all the errands. And I love it. I love it because I get to just spend time with my wife. Um, that's, that's not the Bible part. That's the Ken part. But you should do errands with your spouse. Um, I, I wanted to hit some a parenting thing real quick. We're running out of time, so I'll just try and jump right to it. Um, Romans 12. We actually did a whole sermon on this not too long ago, but I want to I recast it quickly in a parenting light. Romans chapter 12 uh, says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's the interesting thing. Um, is this little phrase in the middle, don't con be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. So if you take it from a parenting standpoint, we're trying to raise kids not to be patterned according to the, uh, the world. That God's will for us as parents and his will for them as kids is that we would somehow be envisioning something different than the pattern of the world. What that means is there is a pattern of the world. And I don't know that we ever call it out. It's everywhere. I don't know that there's much wrong with it, but we all go to Costco on Saturday. That's the pattern of the world. Our weekends in this church uh, by and large, we, we have a certain culture and bend, a certain culture in this church look a certain way. 
Um, the way we do our weeks, where our kids go, where the adults go, look a certain way. It doesn't make them inherently bad, but there is a pattern. And we are called as individual Christians and then also as parents who are going to help raise kids who are in the world but not of the world, that we're going to evaluate the pattern and we're going to make decisions based on that pattern. The biggest mistake people make about me when they label me a homeschooler is that I hate homeschooling worse than they do. They don't understand that. I didn't choose homeschooling. I chose a philosophy of how I was going to raise my kids, and I use homeschooling, a very messy tool, to, to the best result I can to fit my philosophy. Do you understand that? I'm looking at life and going, how am I going to raise my kid to the best of my ability to affirm and nurture who God wants them to be so that they're not falling into the pattern of this world? So whether you're in the school system or out of the school system is the wrong question. The right question is the intentionality with regard to how you're looking at things. And don't just tell me this is how I grew up. Because that's just saying, well, I was patterned this way, so I'm just going to pattern on that way. That's not having intentionality. Do not conform, you or your kids, any longer. And look at it and say how your faith speaks into that thing. And the idea with decision-making is simply going, um, everything's a bit messy, but does the good outweigh the bad? I tend to see people making decisions and go, well, it's not that bad. That's not the same thing. It's looking at it both ways and going on the balance of this messy thing. Is my child able to grow or be nurtured in the way they should go or to love God more or, or to grow in wisdom through this thing? Or does it need me to be involved in it so that I can bring the good out of this messy situation? So yes, I homeschool. I also let my kids read Harry Potter at age seven. And I, I let my kids watch R-rated movies with myself. And I actually sit down with my oldest daughter and watch all sorts of crazy documentaries on, on the history of racism in America and some crazy, crazy stuff. Why? Because it's not the thing in and of itself. It's the intentionality that, that, that I'm trying to bring to it as a discipler, as a teacher of a learner who I'm nurturing. And so we've got to start asking questions. Tamara and I never feel more boxed in and out of touch with people in Bend, Oregon than when we realize we can't actually speak freely because there's an idol there. There are a lot of idols hanging around. And we've got to be willing to kind of Call those out. Doesn't mean they're inherently evil. Doesn't mean you're going to even stop or I'm going to stop. But why is it so hard to actually name things that are complicated and then wrestle with them in, in terms of community instead of feeling threatened or competitive or defensive this is our conversation of faith people of faith that we would look at things as brothers and sisters and together wrestle and encourage and challenge one another that we might be able to do a better job of this intentionality why is it that so many of us feel like there are things we can't even talk about? You might make different decisions than I do with your kids. Um, I trust that you're doing your best. Trust that I'm doing my best. But you know what? We both might be able to do better if iron sharpened iron. It's not a competition to see which parent's better. 
I'm not going to go gossip about you because you're doing it different than me. If we trust one another, instead of rules, instead of pharisaical stuff, if we had grace, then maybe we'd be able to talk about these things in a generous spirit and go, oh, I never really thought about that. That's really good. I'm going to talk to Tamara when I get home. Or we really made a mistake. We'd love to ask you guys what you guys did because we screwed this one up. We've got to be able to talk about things without protecting idols. And the real question is, are we willing to to submit those things to God in the first place? When we're going to come and either worship or go get prayer or, or take and participate of the Lord's Supper, if we're not willing to, as parents, say, I have idols then there's, there's not many places we can really go with that as a community. We've got to be willing to put the idols on the altar. Um, last word, and then I'm praying. If you're busy helping your kids keep up with culture, this is something I wrote a couple days ago. Um, if you're busy helping your kids keep up with culture, you're probably not creating one. It's another way of saying if if your energy is being spent on trying to stay within the pattern of the world, then you're probably not spending enough energy helping repattern a life of faith. If you're busy helping your kids keep up with culture, you're probably not creating one. And it's easier to teach kids when they're young, this is what I believe, than to confront them when they're older. Um, But in all this, Let us submit to one another and dream of the Amish in a different way. It can be better than just being sucked into the bend vortex and becoming Bendites. We can become Amish in a metaphorical sense and gently answer people why we're different um, metaphorically. Father... Um, we commit our marriages to you, we commit our kids to you, and we know that even in doing so, neither are going to be perfect. And there's going to be pain, and there's going to be hurt. And we pray that in all of this, we would always turn our eyes back to you, that we would look to you for our ultimate source of love, of grace, and, and the energy or the strength to sustain. So those that are weak, maybe this morning, as we respond in worship Would you fill us with renewed hope and renewed strength that we mount up um, like on wings of eagles and once again be able to soar. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.